Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I want to speak directly to those who made it possible and to all those who voted for us for the first time and those whose pencils may have wavered over the ballot and who heard the voices of their parents and their grandparents whispering anxiously in their ears. I say thank you for the trust you have placed in us and in me. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx. Right now, all the government's efforts are focused on coronavirus. But what about the fundamental mandate it was elected on? And in the next few weeks and months, we will be bringing forward proposals to transform this country with better infrastructure, better education, better technology. And if you ask yourselves, what is this new government going to do? What is he going to do with his extraordinary majority? I will tell you that is what we are going to do. We are going to unite and level up. Unite and level up, ringing together the whole of this incredible United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, together, taking us forward, unleashing the potential of the whole country, delivering opportunity across the entire nation. As the vaccine rollout continues apace, backbench MPs could be forgiven for raising their eyes to the horizon and starting to think about their prospects for re-election in 2024. By far the biggest Conservative cohort in Parliament is the so-called 109 group of MPs newly elected in 2019. These guys are the cavalry who stormed the Red Wall with promises of delivering Brexit and levelling up those parts of the country that have been overlooked by Labour for generations. They're fiercely loyal to Boris Johnson while recognising that their jobs depend on sticking up for their voters, many of whom aren't traditional Tories. I spoke to four of them from different constituencies to find out how they feel about the future now that Britain has left the EU with a trade deal and the pandemic has derailed our economic prospects. First up, it's Deanna Davidson, MP for Bishop Auckland. Deanna Davidson, thank you so much for joining me on the CapEx podcast. Now, you're the first Conservative ever to be elected in your seat, Bishop Auckland. How do you balance the sort of loyalty that you must feel to Boris Johnson having delivered that victory with standing up for your constituents who are not traditional Conservative voters? Well, I I think sometimes um, there's there's kind of a perception that the two are are really different, but actually in in many cases, the two really go hand in hand because, you know, the focus of this government, um, which I will admit has been definitely distracted a bit by by the handling of COVID, but the focus of the government has been on this levelling up agenda and on how we can deliver for parts of the country that perhaps for, for a little bit too long have been left behind. Um, and my constituency is very much one of those areas that, you know, be it down to that, that local Labour leadership 
or just years of kind of not being really recognised as, as, as an area by Westminster that really needs that, that help and that level up. These are the areas that the, the party and the, the prime minister is really focusing on. So really, a lot, a lot of the, the things my constituents are worried about are the concerns that are shared right across the Red Wall and are things that are really being heard by, by central government. We've got things like the levelling up fund. Um, we've got the, the towns fund and um, the future high streets fund, which are doing great things to help really promote and uh, give some kind of rejuvenation to some of those areas that perhaps have fallen a bit behind. So, you know, there are occasionally moments where you do feel like you're having to, to balance the two. But for the most part, I think I think the two really do go hand in hand. How much do you think Brexit was a deciding factor in seats like yours? And do you think that now that that's been delivered and actually now that the economy is kind of ravaged by the pandemic, that, you know, how do you kind of balance that challenge? How do you think you can hold on to seats like yours now that the goalposts have sort of shifted in that way? Well, I think Brexit was inevitably a, a huge factor in the election result. But um, in my view, less so because of Brexit as a, as a kind of a construct in itself, but actually about how it was handled by, by politicians and by parliament from the point of that vote being cast to um, basically up to the 2019 election. You know, in my part of the world, Bishop Auckland voted, uh, I think, just about 61% to leave. Uh, my predecessor had voted to remain. And the perception amongst um, people living in my area was that my predecessor had, um, their perception was that she kind of done everything she could to kind of block Brexit and stop it from happening. So I think it was more more that, that trust that aspect that really came into play by the time of the 2019 election. You know, you had a Labour Party who were talking about Brexit in a very kind of confused manner, sort of some days suggesting they might have another referendum, some days suggesting not, some saying they want to stay in the customs union, some saying not. And it wasn't really a clear message from them. Whereas what we had was a very clear message, you know, probably the shortest political slogan of all time, get Brexit done. Um, and, you know, a, a sort of clear roadmap of how we were going to do that with the Prime Minister's withdrawal agreement there, ready to be voted on if we did win that majority government. So I think it was more more the trust factor than, than Brexit in itself, that people had seen their local representatives not standing up for what it was that they had directly said they wanted, that they had directly been given the responsibility to vote for. So I think that was a huge factor, but it's it's the trust element that I'm kind of more, more concerned about moving forward. And that's why a lot of my focus um, since getting elected has been on my local community and really trying to prove myself as being there to stand up for my community, to really try and help deliver. Um, and I think the COVID pandemic, you know, whilst presenting unprecedented challenges um, for people right across society, not least for MPs. Um, in some ways, it's kind of presented a, a real early opportunity for me as an MP to kind of prove myself to my constituency that I'm really there getting stuck and doing all I can to help support people. Um, so one of the things my team and I did was set up something called the Bishop Auckland Coronavirus Angels, which was effectively a kind of voluntary organisation where anyone who wanted to get involved and try and help out gave us their names and their contact details, told us what activities they'd be happy doing. We then matched them up with people who needed help so be it they needed shopping deliveries or prescriptions or even just someone to talk to on the phone because they were feeling a bit lonely. And during that first lockdown, that was a really incredible kind of um, scheme we managed to build up with over 100 volunteers helping out hundreds and hundreds of people. And that was just kind of my way of firstly doing what felt natural and trying to do anything I could uh, using my influence to, to try and help as many people as possible. But secondly, also just, just to show that I really was on the side and I'm on the side of, of my constituents. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very locally focused, very much focusing on those those key campaign areas that I campaigned on during the election. So I had a five point plan. I must admit, progress on those five points has been a little more tricky, given the, the challenges the country's been facing with the pandemic. Um, but really, that's my key priority coming up to the next election and, and hopefully beyond is 
you know, basically I, I told people I was going to do some stuff. I want to deliver on that stuff to prove to them that I'm there and I'm listening. And all those issues that come up in the meantime that my um, constituents are really concerned about, I've been acting on those and, and kind of letting people know as well. So um, I'm not sure I've entirely answered your question there, Alice, if I'm completely honest. But um, but yeah, I think Brexit was an important factor, but more so for the for the ripple effect of, of that kind of trust in, in politicians and in the institutions. One of the things that is interesting about you guys, the 2019 cohort, I mean, you're an enormous group in Parliament. And as you're saying, you have been elected on this mandate to really stick up for your constituents. Um, you yourself, you've been kind of vocal in objections to things like HS2, which is a kind of big spending commitment the government's made. So I'm kind of interested in that tension that you guys have between being such vocal supporters of your local constituents, but also such a powerful influence in Parliament. And whether these two things are in, in tension, whether you guys are kind of particularly rebellious bunch or and what kind of challenges that presents to Boris Johnson to the government as a whole? Well, I think, as, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I think for the most part, you know, there is no difference between what the government is doing and trying to achieve and, and us standing up for our constituents and wanting the best for our constituents. I think the two really do go hand in hand um, in many ways. But you're right, I was quite vocal on, on HS2, um, which, as we know, was very much in the pipeline for, for, for years and years and years before I got elected. Um, and my view was basically just it's a really big spending project, it's a huge kind of enormous spending project, which will take up an awful lot of cash, whereas, you know, it won't really necessarily have a, a particular impact on many of my constituents. Those who travel to London frequently, which is a very small, a very small proportion, will save a little bit of time on their journey. Um, but for the most part, you know, for, for my region, I thought there were probably better ways we could put um, even, you know, a, a chunk of that money to, to good use to really try and um, deliver that positive impact. But I was assured when I when I was having these conversations with um, with the whips and with, uh, you know, DFT and even with Prime Minister at one meeting I went to, that um, just because we're spending on HS2 doesn't mean that there isn't money available for other projects too. Um, and that's why, you know, I've been really pushing for um, a bypass in my constituency, which, you know, is a very small scale project in the grand scheme of things, but will make a huge difference to some of my local villages. So as for whether we're a, a particularly rebellious bunch, I, I don't know is the honest answer. Um, it's difficult to say, you know, without having been in Parliament and being able to kind of put it in context. But I certainly think we are um, a very vocal bunch. Um, certainly we've got a lot of younger MPs in and MPs who are quite active across social media, which gets picked up very often. Um, I know I have to be very, very careful what I tweet because I remember very early on when I was elected, I did a kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, tongue tweet about being on a crowded train, like this is the glitz and glam of an MP's life, uh, lifestyle as I sat sort of in a luggage rack, you know, because there were no seats available. And it got picked up by the Daily Mail who kind of called me out for moaning about taking a train on expenses. And it's like, well, I wasn't really making a major political point in my tweet, it was just daft. So I think in that sense, because we are um, probably a little bit more vocal and, and have those channels to be vocal through social media, there maybe is a perception that we are more rebellious. Um, but I think really, you know, we're MPs like any others, we're, we're standing up for, for our constituent, um, where there are things that government's doing that perhaps we think could be done a bit better. Um, a lot of us don't hold back on that. But my personal view is it's kind of still better to go and have those conversations privately in the first instance um, to try and kind of evoke that change from within. Um, I'm not really the sort of person who tends to go running straight to media and, and making a big song and dance about things because I'm not sure that's necessarily the, the right, most constructive approach. But yeah, I mean, we do have a bit of a reputation, I think, the, the 109 intake, but I'm not sure it's entirely, you know, well-founded. 109 is the name of your WhatsApp group, isn't it? But there's actually only 103 of you, is that right? <laughs> It's 107. Um, so I think 
The backstory to this is something like when, when the WhatsApp group was first set up, the number was taken from a Con Home article um, that Mark Wallace, if he does tune into this, I'm blaming you, Mark. Um, <laughs> I think it, it, it typed into the article, there are 109 of us. So we took it, the name of the WhatsApp group kind of stuck and it was only, I think a few weeks or even a few months later, we realized that the number was wrong. At which point we did have a discussion about whether or not to, to change it to, um, <laughs> to 107, but the name was just so ingrained with us then we thought, no, we'll, we'll keep it as a little quirk really. Well, to be fair, I just got the number wrong as well, so I can't blame you. <laughs> um, and, and sort of think about um, the nature of rebellions. I guess you guys all started in Parliament after everything that happened with Brexit, with these huge rebellions. Um, do you think that that's kind of changed the nature of Parliament? I mean, it's maybe perhaps it's difficult to say because you weren't there, but do you think that you've come into an atmosphere where people feel in general less beholden to the whip? I'm not sure. As you said, it probably is quite quite hard for me to make a fair assessment on this, given the fact I kind of wasn't there and privy to those discussions um, in the last parliament. But I guess, you know, listening to conversation, uh, sorry, listen, listening to um, kind of more longstanding colleagues about their experiences across that time. I don't know. I, I think I think Brexit in itself was a was a, an issue that went kind of far beyond the party political. And I think part of that is down to the fact that we kind of um, delegated that decision making to to the public and there was no kind of party whip particularly in the referendum vote, it was kind of, you did whatever your, your conscience dictated. So in a way, I think that the, the whole Brexit kind of debates and um, particularly in Parliament and, and the various votes on various different versions of the withdrawal agreement, et cetera. I think in a way it was kind of taken as a very, a very different issue compared to most. Um, so I'm not sure it's, it's as, as easy a comparison to make with, with other issues in terms of kind of party loyalty. But certainly, you know, when when we were um, selected as candidates in the 2019 election, one of the things that we were asked to do was sign a, a kind of pledge saying, if we're elected, then we will vote for the prime minister's Brexit deal um, when it comes to the House in December. Basically, as a, as a kind of guarantee to our voters that we weren't going to go back on our word and that if they did vote Conservative and we got that majority government, that um, that Brexit would get the Brexit deal would get passed. Um, and, and there we go. And I think every single Conservative candidate signed up to that. So that showed not necessarily party loyalty per se, but certainly um, a desire to, to come together and really get the best possible result for the country. And thinking kind of ahead, you know, about the levelling up agenda, which was the other kind of central thing that you guys got elected on. Do you think, I and mean, we talked a bit about HS2 and big government spending projects, but I mean, you're a Conservative as well. So what do you think the private sector can do to really get involved in this agenda? I think, you know, an awful lot. And I think that the best way to kind of um, reinvigorate areas and bring real value to our communities is by having that partnership of, of public and private sector. And nowhere, in, in my view, but I would say this, nowhere are we seeing this more than um, in Bishop Auckland and the incredible works that are going on in the town um, to really try and make Bishop Auckland um, a, a kind of real visitor attraction. So not only do we have um, funding coming in from, uh, from Durham County Council, we also have funding coming in from central governments through the Future High Streets Fund, where we've got um, just about £19 million. Pounds, and we're putting in this week on Friday, a couple of days, um, our bid for the Stronger Towns Fund. So um, Mr Jenrick, if you're listening, we would like our full amount for that as well, please. But as well as that, there's actually um, quite a lot of private sector um, and charitable sector work going on as well. So we're very blessed in Bishop Auckland to have the Auckland Project. Um, which was set up by um, a philanthropist, Jonathan Ruffer, who has put in a, a, a staggering amount of his own money 
um, into this project to try and really create something special in Bishop Auckland. Um, and uh, if, if you ever get the chance to, to come visit, I'll show you around and show you the attractions because honestly, it's, it's astonishing. Um, you know, that there, there's a project called Kinren, which um, is every summer, um, there's a kind of huge outdoor um, event, like a showcase of the history of County Durham. And there are, there are over a thousand volunteers who get involved in that every year. You know, the volunteering network's incredible. We've got um, new art galleries opening up. We've got Auckland Castle, which has been completely renovated and the garden's being done at the moment. And it's really bringing a buzz around the town. But as I said, that could only really have happened because of that blend of, of private and public sector and charitable sector and really the whole community getting together um, to, to really make this happen. And honestly, I'm so excited to see what the town's going to look like in 10 years' time as, as this kind of continues and grows. So I think that's really important. And, um, you know, I think for, for, for private sector companies, it's about not being afraid to, to get in touch there with, with local decision makers and have those conversations. Because um, we often find that particularly kind of local government, not always the most innovative of, uh, of organisations, but when we work with private sector, with, with the guys who literally are there to come up with the ideas and solutions, you know, it, it can mean really, really good things for a local community. So I think everyone's got a role to play, but private sector, definitely a huge role to play in this. And I guess to sort of finish off, um, looking towards the, the next election, what do you think the government's priorities should be coming out of the pandemic for the country as a whole, but to get guys like you in the Red Wall re-elected in 2024? Um, I, I, you know, the, the priority has to be rebuilding and rebuilding in a way that is is sort of the, the most fair um, and by that what I, what I really mean is you know we see that some sectors and some industries have been hit the hardest by this pandemic things like the hospitality sector um, and the tourism sectors which really have have struggled and certainly for, in my constituency we've, we've kind of seen the effects of that so I think the the build back has to be really equitable we have to make sure that those sectors are kind of prioritized particularly as well looking at the hospitality sector because most people employed in that sector um, are lower earners, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. Um, and so the more support we can give to that sector to keep those jobs there, um, to keep businesses afloat and keep people in work, the better, because the better impact that's going to have for, for some of those lower earners and a lot of younger people as well as who we know are, are employed in that sector. I had my first, I think, three jobs in the hospitality sector, which I absolutely loved. Um, but without them, I certainly wouldn't have learned the kind of the work ethic that, that I have. So it's, it's so crucial. But also looking at particular communities that have been the hardest hit as well. Um, because unfortunately the, the pandemic um, has, has not hit everywhere the same and we need to be really mindful of that. So I think really the focus has to be on, um, on jobs, but on quality jobs and, and long-term jobs, because you know, I think the furlough scheme has been absolutely incredible at, at keeping people in work. But for, I think for some business, it has been seen as a bit, a bit of a crutch as well to kind of get them through. So I'm a little bit concerned about what happens when the furlough scheme ends. And I think our focus has to be on not just protect, protecting jobs in the short term, but in protecting and creating jobs that are going to be there for the long term to help give people that, that sort of security. So that definitely has to be the focus. But also, um, I think in some ways, kind of embracing some of the opportunities the pandemic has presented as well. So, you know, now that we know that most of us are able to work from home, one, we need to be massively investing more in, um, in broadband infrastructure. There are parts of my constituency that can't get fixed line broadband, for example. So they've really struggled, particularly in, uh, over this time. That's been a huge campaign that I've been working on. So that, that's one thing we have to do. But, but secondly, as I say, embracing that opportunity. 
if we can work from home, why do we have people necessarily living in those big cities if they're able to work further out in the suburbs or work remotely from places like Bishop Auckland, um, where I think we could be in a really strong position now to kind of pitch ourselves as a sort of digital commuter town for people who don't really need to be in a physical workplace that often, if at all. So there are definitely opportunities. And I think we need to be quite innovative with our thinking in terms of how we bounce back from this. Um, but the key thing is making sure that, as I said, that that bounce back is fair and that that's always the priority of government in making sure that the hardest hit sectors do get the most support in, in the next few months and years. Thank you so much for talking to me. That's really interesting. That's all. Thank you so much for having me on. Next, I spoke to James Sunderland, MP for Bracknell. So looking back to the election, which I assume feels like a long time ago, people often think of the 2019 cohort of MPs as the, the kind of the red wallers. They, they turned these Labour seats blue, but you're in a, a different position. You took over from a, uh, a Conservative MP. Do you think that gives you a slightly different perspective to some of your colleagues? Do you feel like you have a slightly more traditional Conservative base that you're representing? Or do you think that the priorities of the country have changed and the way that you kind of conduct politics has, has to change as well? It's, it's a really great question because, um, you know, nobody's asked me that before. It's a really great question. I mean, I'm very lucky in that I'm a Berkshire MP. I'm in a traditional Conservative seat. I've got a good majority. I'm very, very lucky. But Bracknell's quite unique in its own sense because it is a very blue-collar town. People in Bracknell are very pragmatic. They're very straightforward. They're bright. You can't bluff them. So I think the issues that face them are very similar to the issues that face, you know, Red Wall MPs. Who have, who have a similar demographic. And, and my point is this, I think that um, whilst there are a number of us in the new intake with traditional conservative seats, some with majorities far bigger than mine, we are one team. And I think in many ways, the levelling up agenda that Boris Johnson talks about a lot in relation to the red wall seats in particular, that exists right across the UK. That's not unique to the red wall seats. Uh, and levelling up is as applicable in Bracknell as it is in Melton, as it is in Devizes, uh, as it is for the North. So we are one team. We, we think collectively. We are one third of the parliamentary party. There's no threat implied there at all. Um, but these are MPs in the main who are very loyal to Boris Johnson, because I think they credit Boris Johnson with, you know, with some responsibility for getting them elected. And do you think that applies um, across the board for the 2019 MPs? I mean, how have you... Um... You say you're one team. How have you found kind of working together when you've presumably all been spread across the country working from home? You're not kind of in the bars and tea rooms at Westminster like MPs from previous cohorts will have been. How have you managed to kind of coalesce and come together around sort of shared goals? I mean, I think the simple answer is that we're all Conservative MPs. So that's the common thread which runs through all of us. Um, we're all new MPs. None of us want to burn our bridges too quickly. We're not going to die on our swords over a particular issue at this point in time because we're loyal to the cause, and that's, and that's entirely right. But you'd be quite surprised how gregarious the new intake is. We haven't been in the bars. We haven't been meeting socially. Um, but we're still in Westminster in many cases. <clears throat> I've been there throughout. I've never participated virtually ever with this particular parliament. I've always got it into Westminster, which is the right thing to do. Why? Because I'm close enough, but also more importantly, it's because my constituents elected me to represent them in Westminster. And I'm much more effective in Westminster talking to ministers and being part of that machine. Um, but don't be fooled by how frequently we do meet virtually. 
by the power of WhatsApp. Um, I think I've got about 150 WhatsApp groups at the moment, which is a nightmare. This is a government that's operating via WhatsApp. This is the new trend, if you like. And um, how much easier is it now to pick up the phone and text a minister or go onto WhatsApp, get an instant answer from a minister? Whereas in the old days, of course, you had to write a, a written question and then take weeks to get an answer. So this is a very effective government. We're communicating all of the time. Uh, we're talking to our whips all of the time. Um, don't be fooled by the remote nature of what we're doing. We're still pretty joined up. I suppose a lot of businesses have actually found that moving things online has made them more productive and maybe it's the same for government. I think you're right. I mean, there will be some questions asked, I think, after lockdown's finished. Are businesses as effective operating virtually? Do they need premises? Do they need to spend money on travel budgets when, of course, they can go online and do it virtually with Zoom or with Teams? But, but I think that MPs in the main are pretty unanimous in the sense that Westminster is the place to operate. The Conservative Party in particular wants its MPs there. And it's only because of the restrictions in force and the difficulties of getting in and the risk of further transmission that these difficult decisions have been taken. Uh, you know, I talk to colleagues all of the time, many of whom insist on going into Westminster. Um, which, of course, they can do because going into work is perfectly, perfectly le legitimate. But there are others who prefer to stay at home. I wanted to ask you a bit about um, yourself and your own priorities for your constituency. So you're a, a military veteran. Um, Sandhurst is, is in your constituency. You, you've talked a lot about um, Britain's need to have uh, robust defence capabilities and bucket loads of soft power, I think, is a phrase you used in your maiden speech. So I was wondering what you thought about the decision, albeit temporary, to cut the foreign aid budget. That specific issue, I think, um, was the right thing to do. So it's gone down from about 0.7% of GDP to 0.5%. I think that's entirely reasonable. It comes with a caveat because I think that the government will undertake to put it back to where it has been traditionally when good times return. Charity begins at home. We are spending enormously on COVID-19. I think two and a half trillion pounds or thereabouts national debt at the moment. We can't afford to be generous, particularly with countries who've got huge GDPs themselves. So I happen to think that A, it was the right thing to do as a temporary measure, but B, it must come with the requirement for a comprehensive review on how we spend that money. Um, I've served in Africa, I've served all over the world, and uh, I'm not convinced that all of that money is going to the right, the right locations. So Let's have a look at it in the round and let's put it back when we can. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. 
Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Should defense spending more broadly be a priority uh, as we come out of the pandemic? We're going to have a lot of you know, domestic requirements on, on the budget. Yeah, I mean, defence spending is um, a necessary evil. And um, as an MOD man myself, I, I can tell you that, uh, that, that the money is needed as an insurance policy. Uh, we have very potent forces, both nuclear and conventional. We are the fifth largest economy in the world. We're a member of the UN Security Council. We've got a proud history of keeping the peace. We are an ally of the United States of America. And we have global responsibilities. And people say to me often that we should be spending such large sums of money on MOD and on defence spending. I disagree. I think we should be because it's that defence spending which keeps us safe. And also, I'm a huge fan of soft power being underpinned by hard power. If we're serious about the, you know, the, the golden thread that exists between democracy at home and world trade, new trade deals, post-Brexit, uh, world post Brexit UK. This is about going out into the world and selling what we've got. This is about imports and exports, balance of payments, all underpinned, I think, by being a meaningful player on the world stage militarily. So I'm afraid uh, it's a necessary evil. And what about domestic spending priorities? What, what do you think the government really needs to do to make sure we can recover from the pandemic and ultimately to get re-elected in 2024? Well, I mean, if you go back 12 months, go back to early 2020, we'd had a resounding election victory, huge majority in the House of Commons, uh, a clear mandate to deliver Brexit. Life was pretty good. More people in employment than ever before. The economy was booming. Our stock market was booming. Uh, and um, the future looked pretty rosy. I think what we need to be doing now is getting back to that level and in particular, I think we need to be focusing on livelihoods and jobs and the economy, first and foremost. You've got to create the wealth that allows you to spend on public services. It doesn't grow on trees. You just can't keep borrowing extra money. So creating wealth is absolutely vital for a free market capitalist economy. I also think we need to be incentivizing foreign businesses to come to the UK and also incentivize them to stay. I think we are seeing the risk of European businesses co-locating uh, back to back to Europe. No, we need to stop that. We need to make sure that we've got a fantastic low tax, um, high incentive economy in the UK that people want to come here and stay here. Why shouldn't the UK be this fantastic beacon on the world stage? Greenwich Mean Time, we've got a good climate, a very high tech workforce. We've got fantastic ports, airports. We've got good rail. We've got good macro conditions, low tax. It's the perfect place to do business. Plus, I think at the last count, 90 brand new trade deals with countries all over the world that we haven't been able to have free trade with for a long time. So in my view, this is a very, very persuasive narrative. And I think that the future is really, really positive. We need to make it so. I think that's a great positive note to end on. Thanks you so much for speaking to me, James Sunderland. A pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Virginia Crosby, MP for Innes Mon.
you were the first Conservative to represent your seat since 1987. Um, after the election, there was a lot of analysis of how the Conservatives broke through the Red Wall, but why do you think so many people in Anglesey voted Conservative for the first time? That's right. I'm the first Conservative here since 1987. Um, I think apart from my dad, no one thought that I could turn it blue in, in just three weeks. Uh, there, it was a 5,000 Labour majority. It was Plaid's number one target seat. Um, I don't have one Conservative councillor here and um, I, I didn't even speak the language. Uh, but I think they, it was a unique situation here. Uh, it was um, a draw seat, which means it's 50-50 uh, leave remain. The Labour MP was standing down. We had Brexit. And also um, there really wasn't much support here for, for Jeremy Corbyn. So I, I stood on a mandate, very, very clear message, which was to deliver Brexit. And uh, I was very proud at the, uh, the end of my first few weeks uh, as an MP. That, that was my first vote. So I delivered Brexit. Um, and that was there's people that believed in Brexit and they wanted Brexit. So they were happy. There were people that were just really, really frustrated and they absolutely uh, wanted to move on after three and a half years of frustration. And there were people that believed in democracy. They might have not have voted for, for Brexit, but they believed in democracy. So it was a very, very specific um, uh, set of uh, three criteria. How do you think the game has changed now that Brexit has been delivered and Labour has a, a different leader? I think the it, it's it is different because we're in the middle of a, a a pandemic. So I think that is that is very very different. So I think we're seeing some uh, really sort of uh, very clear messaging coming through from us. Sure. Um, looking back over the pandemic, that's what an unexpected first year as an MP this must have been. Um, has it made it harder to deliver on your election promises? How has it changed things? Yes, I think nobody could have expected um, uh, this to be our first 12 months. I think it's pretty challenging for any MP, uh, their first 12 months. I didn't inherit anything. Um, I had to set up my office um, I, in Hollyhead and recruit my staff in Westminster and here uh, on the island. I was promoted uh, last year to be PPS for health ministers. My background is, is health and, and virology. And so it's been an absolute privilege to be uh, supporting the whole of the UK at a time of national crisis. And um, I always also moved my family here. So I'm, I'm actually speaking to you uh, just outside Holyhead and, and all my family and, and my Cocker Spaniel here. So it's been a, a, an absolute, um, absolutely challenging 12 months, but it has been a privilege to be able to serve uh, an island uh, like Arnest Morn. And as a Welsh Conservative, you're in quite a unique position because obviously you're a member of the national government, but you're also in a way kind of in opposition to Mark Drakeford's Labour. How do you think the Welsh government has handled the pandemic? How do you think the devolution side of things has played out? I think it's been very challenging for uh, every single government of uh, the coronavirus pandemic to handle. And I think it's particularly hard here in Wales because of uh, the rural population and the demographics that we have here. Um, the hospitals here, uh, Aspati Gwynedd, uh, my local hospital here in Bangor, it, it's only just come out of uh, special measures. So there are some unique challenges. Um, it's been particularly confusing for people here in Wales. Um, some of the uh, Welsh government's uh, sort of uh, rules and regulations for example we had a you weren't allowed to travel more than five miles which is 
quite challenging here if you want to uh, take your kids to school or you want to go and fill up with fuel or, or even um, go to the shops. And I think that the, the differences um, between some of the messaging coming out uh, from Number 10 and coming out from Welsh Government was, was very confusing for people. And it's a very uncertain time. And my mailbox at the moment is just full of people that want to get access to the vaccine. And the vaccine rollout here in, in Wales has been slower than the rest of the, the UK. And this means lives. This means lives are at risk. So I think that um, in terms of uh, my constituency, constituents, there, there has been a, a lot of concern. And of course, we need everybody to, to buy into um, living by the rules um, because that's the only way we are, gonna, we are going to beat this invisible yet deadly enemy by, by working together. Yeah, um, exactly. And as you say, um, if the vaccine rollout does go well and it gets us out of this pandemic, by the end of the year, we hope. Um, what do you think the priorities should be going forward? What, how do you think the government can win re-election in 2024? Well, I think already we have delivered um, some of our, our election promises. Um, and despite it being a challenging 12 months, um, we've delivered Brexit and we've got a, we've got, we got a deal. Uh, we don't have tariffs or, or quotas. Um, we've got control of our borders, our laws and our money. We've seen significant investment in hospitals, recruiting more nurses and more people into the police force. And critically, we've been investing in our, our people um, here on the island. More, um, almost 8,000 people here have been furloughed as a result of the, the pandemic. And we've launched uh, schemes like the Kickstart schemes. We've seen a uh, of businesses uh, supported by some of the, the uh, coronavirus business interruption loans so there's been a whole package of measures to support people and to support businesses and really it's that business support that we need to be focusing on to ensure that we can have economic growth as we come out of this 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 uh, pandemic and one of the election promises the delivering the leveling up agenda is particularly pertinent to my constituents uh, here on Arnest Morn because it's got one of the lowest GVA of any uh, any area in the UK we're very exposed to tourism we're very exposed to hospitality and when I go around the island young people say to me they want to be able to have a have a job have a quality job and to be able to uh, bring up their families here buy a home, stay in their community and of course keep the Welsh language um, alive and strong. So that all starts with good quality jobs. So as a government what we're doing is ensuring that there are jobs there, we're investing in jobs and importantly ensuring that people have got the skills to take advantage of these jobs and that they've got aspiration that they actually want to want to have th have these jobs. So I think it's a really critical time for, for us as a government and us as a country. Thank you very much Virginia it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much Alice thank you and finally I spoke to Alex Stafford MP for Rother Valley Alex Stafford thank you so much for joining me on the CapEx podcast like many other MPs who were elected in 2019 you're the first Conservative uh, ever to hold your seat in Rother Valley why do you think the people of your constituency went blue for the first time in 2019? I think there's a, a whole lot of reasons. Uh, but I think they all come down to a fundamental point. Let's be honest, Brexit was incredibly important. Jeremy Corbyn was very important. But both Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit, to me, and to I think most people in Rother Valley, were more symptomatic of Labour taking for granted seats like Rother Valley, seats across the north, and people getting sick and tired of just being taken for granted. And the, and the Brexit vote really summed up uh, the attitudes of Labour to their core voters, their traditional core voters. My seat voted 
uh, for leave. Yet Labour kept coming around and said, well, you're, you're too stupid. Your voice doesn't matter. We don't care what you voted for. What actually matters is what we think. And I think finally, voters in seats like this from Rother Valley got tired and said, well, no, that's wrong. That's not how democracy works. You do not represent our views and our values. We're sick and tired of being taken advantage of and ignored. And that, to me, was the biggest shift. Because if you look, in my view, if you look at a lot of the, the seats in the North, those that were marginal before are still relatively marginal. Those that were traditionally safe Labour seats have massively swung uh, to the Conservative. And so, so seats like High Peak, for instance, that's always been a marginal, it's still a marginal. Seats like mine was traditionally in the 70s was Labour's safest seat. It's now a six and a half thousand or almost six and a half thousand Conservative majority. People have realised that Labour do not represent their views and values anymore. Do you think, I mean, you mentioned there Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit. These were two very specific <laughs> things at the time. Now, we obviously, we've left the EU with a trade deal, Labour has, you know, arguably a much more credible leader. How much do you think that changed the game for you? Am I saying that uh, Keir Starmer appeals more to the electorate than uh, Jeremy Corbyn? Yes, of course. Most people in this world would appeal more to the electorate than Jeremy Corbyn. But that's quite a low bar to have. In my view, uh, Keir Starmer, the North London elite, does not really appeal to so many voters. After all, he was the architect of so much of Labour's Brexit policy. And the voters realise that although Brexit has, for not tens of prices, been o- is over, it's these attitudes that same. Even recent this weekend, we saw with Lisa Nandy talking about her attitudes to this woke, bizarre Peace Corps army thing. The attitudes that ran the Labour Party for the last five, ten years are still the attitudes that are running the Labour Party today. Nothing has changed. Maybe the conversation has changed, but the attitudes are there. And the electorate do see this. And I think that's why we're seeing in the polling, Labour are still generally slightly behind Conservatives. Yes, they've built up a huge, they've increased their vote, vote share since the election, but they're still not taking a, taking a lead, despite the very difficult and strenuous circumstances that we're currently facing. People realise that Labour really hasn't changed. They may have changed the leadership, but there's so many people who are running the party, there's no difference. Boris Johnson talked about, uh, when he first became Prime Minister, um, not taking the votes of of people like those in Mother Valleys for granted. What do you see as your job to really deliver for those people and make sure that you can hold on to your seat in the next election? Yeah, well, well, let's, as I said before, it's all about listening to the voters and not taking people for granted about their, their voice and their views. I think the most important and essential job of any MP is to, to listen to people. And I think we heard again and again across the North and, and the Midlands, the Labour Party wasn't listening. But we have to be honest about ourselves, myself as Conservative. Areas like Rother Valley have been neglected by both sides. Labour, because they took the votes for granted, they'd always they'd always win, therefore why bother working? And the Conservatives, to an extent as well, saying, well, well we're not going to win, so why put the effort in? But I think, regardless of who you voted for in Rother Valley, it's far better for you now, because Conservatives, like myself, will work hard, we want to keep the seat, want to sort of level up, want to increase funding, want to make your voices heard. And Labour realise, oh gosh, we can actually lose these areas, and frankly, we could lose more seats in the North, there's definitely more seats which Conservatives almost won without doing any campaigning in, uh, they were like, we've actually got to up our game, actually work for people. So I think regardless, it's great for everyone because both sides of the political debate are now suddenly realising there's all to play for. And also with the vote now sort of more, more soft, that you've got to work hard. So when it comes to actual policies, number one is obviously being listened to. But we've also got to show that we are increasing prosperity, increase jobs, and make sure there is a, a future. Rother Valley, for those of your listeners who don't know, was literally at the heart of the miners' strike. The Battle of Orgreave happened in Rother Valley. The sort of totemic uh, image of the miners' strike happened in my seat. 
But when I was knocking on doors and I knocked about 8,000 doors in general election campaign, nobody mentioned the minor strike. People have moved on. People are looking to what the future held for them and their families. And Labour often were talking about the past, the minor strike and the like. But I think people now in my seat, seat want to know, actually, I don't almost, I, well, I understand what happened in the past and it wasn't great. But what's more important is the future and what the parties can do for me in the future and my family in the future. And I think they've actually broken this shibboleth of that thing you know, and hocked to the past. And actually, what can you, as a Conservative or Labour, what can you do for us in the future? That's what matters. I think um, there's been a lot of analysis of the uh, of you guys in the 2019 cohort being perhaps much more rebellious or much more vocal in standing up for your constituents than perhaps MPs have been around for a bit longer. And know that you signed a letter of opposition to, to HS2. Tell me a bit about that. I mean, isn't infrastructure a vital part of the levelling up agenda? Oh, infrastructure is hugely important, but I would argue that HS2 is a waste of money and, and not wanted in my constituency. And, and I'm going to be honest, if you live you know, in inner city Leeds, it probably will help you. But the vast majority of people don't live in inner city Leeds. The fact that you could probably have shave a few minutes off your time from Leeds down to London, yes, it's great if you live in inner city Leeds, but it doesn't help anyone else. And for the price tag of £110 billion at the moment, it will, of course, increase. It'll be a 200 plus billion by the end of this. You can have that money for far better infrastructure projects. For instance, we need to have a something called HS3 or Northern Powers Rail across Pennine Route. That's going to be far better for living up. It's, it takes forever to get from my seat, which is just outside Sheffield, basically, to Manchester. It's a very short distance, miles-wise, but it takes hours. It's only a, a, the, the, the public transport bad, the road's bad. We need that sort of connectivity rather than shaving a few minutes off down to London. We want to have the infrastructure that actually works the area. Anyone can spend money. That's not necessarily living, living up. That's not actually investment. And what annoys me is a lot of politicians uh, talk about investment and spending as the same thing. They're not. You can spend a lot of money on a lot of things. That's not investment. Investing is when you get some sort of return and a meaningful return. And, that's, and it can be towards business and quantifiable that way. But it's also about improving quality of life. So if I'm telling the people on the streets of Dinnington or Maltby, is HS2 going to improve your life? The answer would be no, it's taking away money from products that might benefit my life, whether it's uh, more better buses, whether it's across Pennine Route, whether it's even improving up a high street or fixing potholes. That's going to have a more material benefit to people than some a train line that also knocks through hundreds of my ha houses and my constituency as well and doesn't benefit anyone. So I very much believe in investment and leveling up, but I don't think HS2 at all delivers that for the overwhelming majority of people in the North. I'm interested in um, how you guys who've, you know, you've started your new job uh, and then this pandemic has come along. Um, you've been kind of scattered across the country, all working from home. And yet you've still managed to, on this HS2 letter, for example, you managed to come together with it, other MPs and campaign as a group. I just want to give our listeners a bit of a sense of, of what it's been like, how you've managed to work together and what the particular challenges have been of starting your political careers under such odd circumstances. Well, I think we're all, whoever you are, realising a new sort of normal of how to work. I mean, so much of politics, like any job, is done in those conversations, those meetings, which frankly, we, ha we have some, but far less than we would normally, even sort of identifying colleagues who are on the same wavelength as you and how working together, it's far harder. But it just means you just have to find different ways of doing it. Like we're all, like we're doing this over over Zoom. There's, there's technology that helps you deal with it. There's WhatsApp groups, there's technology, there's meetings, there's lots of ways of working it out. But I do think it is more difficult than if we were back in a normal situation. Actually, I think it's very hard. And you mentioned earlier on about the 2019 intake being more rebellious or more vocal. 
I think part of the reason why that is actually is because we are so disparate geographically that we, in order for us to be heard, you have to be a bit more public facing to make that noise to actually make sure that your voice is heard because you know with the lob the word lobbying someone comes from the the house of commons lobbies and actually buttonholing a minister you can't do that if you're doing it remotely so you have to find other ways to make sure your voices are heard which is why i think actually more uh, mps 2019 want to be more vocal and using the medium out there whether it's the press whether it's letters to actually make sure our voice is not ignored but one thing on that as well as the rebellious side one thing being perfectly clear from us for us all when we were elected for us, Northern seats, Midland seats, is that the party wants to hear our voice. They want to know what benefits our areas. They want to know what difference uh, us can make because quite a lot of the voters in Rother Valley uh, and, and other seats are first time voters to Conservatives. They are quite a different uh, voter than people who you know live in the leafy shires of Hampshire or Surrey or, or the like. There's different conditions, different stresses. And the Conservative Party is still relatively new uh, at speaking to voters in large parts of the, of the North. And they need to understand what, what is being being said. I mean, when I fought 2019 election, despite the Conservatives being in power for 10 years, we didn't fight an incumbency campaign. We fought as a sort of insurgency campaign because everything in the area is Labour. I mean, in my seat, literally, we have the 60 councillors. There's not a single Conservative on the councillor. We are not the party of government. We are not the party of being controlled of these areas. We are the agency. So we have to have, make sure our voice are heard in many different ways. And what about your relationship with your constituents? I mean, you, you obviously made a, a powerful case that you're there to really listen to and be the voice of your constituents. But how, how have you managed yeah. to maintain that kind of strong connection when we're all stuck at home and it's harder to get out, out and about? Yeah, it is a lot harder. Politicians love you know, shaking hands and kissing babies, which are two things which are definitely not uh, to be encouraged during a global COVID pandemic. But you just have to find other ways. I mean, and, and frankly, the, the guidance changes so often, uh, whether it's the tier system. I think in a space of three weeks, rather we went from tier two to tier three to tier four, literally every week. So, so the, what we could do literally changed by the week. And you have to adapt. So, you know, for instance, most of my surgeries now are, well, at the moment, in national lockdown, are all done by, by Zoom or phone call. Uh, during tier tier three or tier four, I literally did surgeries outside. I remember one morning, I can't remember what morning it was, sitting outside at 8.30 in some, some woman's uh, garden, freezing cold because we couldn't be inside, but we allowed to be outside. And then that, that's tier three. And then tier four, you couldn't meet in person's gardens. Then I literally had to stand in the street. So it's how to uh, adapt to do these things. Doing a lot more uh, social media, social media, Facebook, uh, especially is, is a lifeblood. It, it's the way of actually getting out there and speaking to people and actually hearing people's views as well, especially through surveys, asking people's opinions about what matters uh, prior to the second national lockdown, because then when things were a bit, you know, over the place, all over the place, I, one big question I did a big survey, like, what, what do you think of residents think should happen? Should I be supporting a national lockdown or not? Uh, and trying to gauge people's views that way. I've hosted things like Facebook Live events. I've even, well, during this lockdown, hosted a schooling with Stafford event. So I've uh, wrote to all the schools and youth groups and parish councils and encouraged people to give a couple of hours so I can teach the children about politics and things I know about, but give the parents a, a break from all the great hard work homeschooling they're doing. So it's really embracing technology uh, and getting out as much as you can. But as you said, it's not nearly as good as it should be or could be or would be. We were lucky during summer, things were massively relaxed uh, in Rotherham, my area, but we will have to see what the future holds. And um, if this vaccine does get us out of the pandemic, as we hope it will, um, what do you think the government's priorities should be? Well, let's be honest. 
the economy is in a parlous state, absolutely dire state. The government has given hundreds and hundreds of billions of pounds to save jobs, save businesses, but we can't save every job and we can't save every business. And that is the sad, sad truth. And unfortunately, we have to pay that money. All the hundreds of billions we've given out to furlough money, to business grant schemes, that has to be repaid. There's no such thing as free money. We are conservatives. It's fiscally responsible to save jobs at the moment, and we need to save jobs. But ultimately, we can't carry on borrowing because the country will be bankrupt and we can't afford things like the NHS. And there are going to be some tough decisions over the next you know, year, 18 months, potentially two years, where there's going to be, you know, there's going to be uh, tough choices. So the most important thing is get the economy back on track and try and have those those growth in jobs and actually save as many jobs as we can. I am relatively optimistic though about our economy bouncing back and for many reasons, uh, one including uh, actually Brexit. I think because uh, we have left the European Union, we can economically be far more fleet of foot about where we invest our money, uh, the sort of the, the deals we can do with other countries. So we don't have to wait for the sort of the trading block to make a decision. We can actually do what's best for Britain. So I do think we will be able to bounce back better and quicker than we would otherwise but it's going to be a tough few years no question no question alex Stafford, thank you so much for speaking to me it's been a pleasure to talk to you great well thank you very much indeed for having me so i thought i'd just round off with some reflections on these conversations and i think the first thing to say is that the 109 is an incredibly diverse group they're all elected for different reasons and putting them all into a sort of northern red tory box is way too simplistic but I think it's also fair to say that without that unifying message of get Brexit done, there's a lot less focus. Leveling up means different things in different places, and there's much more to it than state spending on big infrastructure projects, as I think Deanna and Alex's objections to HS2 show. Jobs was also a big theme in these interviews, and while employment has held up reasonably well so far, as the furlough scheme comes to an end, we can expect that to change, and recovery won't necessarily be spread evenly across the country. So if the vaccine does bring an end to the pandemic, uniting around a few central priorities will be a big challenge for the Conservatives. But from talking to these MPs, I'd say they're up for it. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, listener. Is it me you're looking for? As brands, we're always wanting to make a connection, to find the person you can rely on, the one that's there every week, month, or year, and always has your back when you need them the most. It's a little like matchmaking, don't you think? With ACAST podcast ads, you can filter for your exact dream audience so you can find the ideal customer for your business. The Romeo to your Juliet, the Rachel to your Ross, the Bert to your Ernie, and avoid those red flags and time wasters. Your ads can communicate with them in the most intimate way possible. A one-on-one conversation, a chance meeting in the gym, or a coffee shop. So go on, give it a try. With over hundreds of thousands of listens a month, your person is probably here. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com to get started.